0: What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. This is episode number 25 and in this episode we are going to be breaking down an extremely important history and that is the history of central banking. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the formation of the two most important central banks in the world and that is of course the Bank of England and later on the Federal Reserve. Now on the face of it, this might sound like a bit of a dry subject, but make no mistake, the history of central banking is the history of everything. It is the linchpin to understanding all that is going on in the world right now. It's also a story filled with lies, deception, blackmail, murder, and a never-ending epistemological war by the banksters against the masses of humanity. So in part one, I'm going to be breaking down The story of the formation of the Bank of England, the most powerful central bank in the world up until the formation of the Federal Reserve, which is ultimately where this story is going to take us in part two. Now, along the way, I'm going to be uncovering many hidden aspects to these stories that have been scrubbed from mainstream history. And that's going to help us all better understand how this debt-based Fiat Ponzi scheme was built and used to enslave entire nations to a small cabal of bankers. So if we want to escape what comes next, we really have to understand this story, so I'm going to leave it there for the introduction. Members, please come and join me over on ParallelMike.com for the full episode. You are certainly not going to want to miss this one. It is absolutely packed with information. It took a very long time to put this one together. But I think we've nailed it I think we've got a fantastic show that's going to really reveal the truth about central banking if you're just here for part one consider joining at parallelmike.com because you will get access to the full episode and also to the members forum too where we're going to be discussing this and everything else that we need to discuss to get ourselves ready for what might come next and trust me i have got a lot coming down the pipeline very, very quickly, which I'm going to talk about in tonight's episode. So that's it for the introduction. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy and happy. And of course, I'll see each and every one of you in the next one. OK, everybody, our story begins in the April of 1204 when the Western Norman Crusaders sacked Constantinople and set into motion a chain of events that would eventually trigger the end of the Byzantine Empire. Now remember, the Byzantine Empire was the Eastern Roman Empire, so after Rome fell, or should I say splintered apart, because it did still exist, but it started to fall apart. But despite this, the Byzantine Empire continued for many hundreds of years further, and it was much more prosperous than the old Roman Empire, and was much more successful. Now, on the flip side of the end of the Byzantine Empire, we got the Venetian banking oligarchs. And many of these were actually from elite Roman families that emanated from Rome, from the noble families, and they fled to Venice when the collapse of the empire began. They took with them obscene amounts of money. I'm talking gold and silver, real money, God's money. They had a lot of it, they took it with them and they would use that to start dominating first Italy and then Europe and then eventually the rest of the world through central banking, which is what this story is going to be about tonight. So that's why our story must begin here with the end of the old world and the start of the new. Whilst Byzantine aristocrats established a number of small independent splinter states, one of them being the Empire of Nicaea, which would eventually recapture Constantinople in 1261, the sacking of Constantinople is a major turning point in medieval history, and the Byzantium Empire was essentially killed off, finally collapsing as a consequence of the Turkish invasion, which was, of course, funded by the Lombard oligarchy of Italy in 1453. Now, when I say Lombards, when I say Venetians, these are all interchangeable terms, so you'll often hear different books use different terms for the banking oligarchies of Italy, but I think Venetians, Lombards, they all refer to the same cabal, And I'm not going to get into that one too deep, it's just important to know that those words are interchangeable. Now let's get back to this quote, it says, The Crusaders looted, pillaged, raped and vandalised Constantinople for three days, during which many ancient and medieval Roman and Greek works were either seized or destroyed. The famous bronze horses from the Hippodrome were sent back to adorn the façade of St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, where they still remain today. As well as being seized, works of considerable artistic value were destroyed for their material value. One of the most precious works to suffer such a fate was the large bronze statue of Hercules, created by the legendary Lysippos, court sculptor of Alexander the Great. Like so many other considerable artworks made of bronze, the statue was melted down for its content by the Crusaders for surplus profit. Despite their oaths and the threat of excommunication, the Crusaders systematically assaulted the city's holy sanctuaries, destroying or seizing all that was deemed remotely of value. Little was spared, and the tombs of the emperors inside the Saint Apostles Church fell victim to such looting as well. Of the civilian population of Constantinople, it is estimated that 2,000 were killed. The Crusaders, with poor leadership also sacked churches, monasteries and even convents. It is said that the total amount looted from Constantinople was around 900,000 silver marks. The Venetians received 150,000 silver marks that was their due and the Crusaders received around 50,000 silver marks. A further 100,000 silver marks were divided evenly between the Crusaders and the Venetians and the remaining 500,000 silver marks were secretly kept back by many Crusader knights. Okay, so the reason I wanted to share that little bit of history is because if we accept that 1453 was really the final nail in the coffin for the fractured Byzantine Empire... Then, what we had after that was this host of banking oligarchs who were now extremely rich that looted lots of Europe already. so the people we see today, like Bill Gates, who we 're told is the richest man on planet earth, no, these people are not rich. These people are playing a role. they get to play rich. You have to understand, they get to play rich the true assets they are owned by the banking cartels and Bill Gates is not the richest landowner in America he doesn 't own all of the farmland that land is held in trust. he gets to hold on to it by title. But it is not his. It is owned by the banking oligarchy. Now, this will make sense the more we get into this story, particularly when I discuss JP Morgan later on. So, like I said, in history, you often hear these bankers called Venetians or Lombards. And if you've listened to my previous episodes, and I'm thinking of number 22 specifically, which is Why Every Banker Owns a Tarot Deck, if you want to know the title... You'll know that there were numerous ultra-rich oligarchical families spread throughout Italy. So it wasn't just in Venice, it was also in regions like Milan, Florence, Genoa. And they were all vying for power and marrying into one another's bloodlines. They were marrying into these royal bloodlines in England, France, the Holy Roman Empire. But ultimately, it was the Venetian faction that became the most powerful. Now, this is actually a really important point because many people today have been convinced that they should have fealty to a nation, loyalty to a country. Well, that is an invention that these families created for us, but it's certainly not how they existed. For these families, it's all about power and wealth. It's all about power and wealth. And there is this thing that I've mentioned previously called the family fondo. That is absolutely critical because this is how you accumulate power and wealth intergenerationally. So these families would create a fondo and that is the pulled wealth of the family. And they would try and increase that with each passing generation, knowing that if they did this, and when I'm saying wealth, I mean gold, I mean silver, I mean land, I mean palaces, I mean titles, to dukedoms, to kingdoms. So their goal was always to increase that fondo. Location, however, was of little relevance to them. In the same way, it's of little relevance to the elites today. They simply see themselves as part of a global coterie whose aim is to dominate all nations and they're quite happy to move around. They've got zero qualms about destroying the country they're residing, if it feathers that agenda. And they do not view themselves as beholden to any single nation. You have to understand that so when i talk about the venetians where did they come from did they emanate purely out of venice no they went back to rome they probably went all the way back to ancient babylon and if you look at some of the rituals and some of the occult black magic and dark arts that they practiced you can actually trace these back to much older societies and civilizations so that is how you can tell that they likely had descended from the same people that their wealth had actually been accumulated over Thousands of years, not just hundreds of years. Now, in the years that followed the sacking of Constantinople, which, as I mentioned, the Venetians have funded, there was a consolidation phase in terms of power, but it certainly was not guaranteed what the outcome would be. It wasn't like the Venetians were all of a sudden in power and in control of Europe, not the case at all. Really, what set the Venetians apart, what enabled them to go on to become the most powerful, was that they were masters of the dark arts. I'm talking their use of spies, blackmail, espionage, propaganda, subterfuge. This is what eventually saved them from annihilation, too, because there was a war that happened in 1508. It was 1508 to 1516 called the League of Cambry War. And this was when a lot of nations actually banded together to try and kick the Venetians out. They wanted to destroy the Venetians because they understood that this tiny little lagoon, you've got to remember Venice is a tiny little place, a little lagoon out there, but because of their use of spies, blackmail and all of that, um, dark arts as we call it, which would be like modern day intelligence, they were able to manipulate all of the different nations of Europe into going to war with one another. And then they would go in and pick up the pieces. Remember, they were the moneylenders. So they'd lend the kings and queens of Europe money to go to war. But of course, to lend the money, you had to orchestrate a war. So they used to do a lot of subterfuge to try and get these nations into a war situation. But like I said, in 1508, the League of Cambry banded together. This was a number of nations. There was the English, the French, there was the Holy Roman Empire. And they decided, we've had enough and we're going to get rid of these Venetians once and for all and they come so very close to doing that but ultimately it was the vast intelligence network and the venetians expertise in using that that saved them and they managed to get the vatican who were also part of the league to switch sides and they bribed the right people they blackmailed and assassinated the right people And ultimately, they got the League of Cambry to disband and they survived by the skin of their teeth. So whilst the Venetians survived, the whole experience did have a profound effect on the Venetian Republic. They realized just how close they'd been to destruction. And from that point onward, they really focused all of their efforts on ensuring that they never had to meet their foes on the battlefield. And this is really why many people credit the Venetians as forming the first truly global intelligence agency from which all future intelligence agencies would be modelled. If you want to understand things like Jeffrey Epstein and Honey Traps, where they lure elites into getting into compromising situations, that all came from Venice. They were masters at that. They were masters at blackmail, like I said. And they found that if they could just create a vast network of people, people they could bribe or manipulate or blackmail, then they could ultimately play puppet master and they could start to control nations from within. So really what the Venetians excelled at and mastered was the art of a few controlling the many and that's precisely what they did in Europe by manipulating the state of play so much by having so many puppets, by having so many people on their payroll, so many spies, they understood that if they could do that they didn't need to go to war. They could control the masses of Europe from a very small place with just a few families. You can never understand Venice by studying what position the Venetians took on an issue. The Venetians did not care what position they took, they always took all positions. Their method was one of looking for the weak point and corrupting the person. At this form of evil, they were the masters. Their diplomatic corps was the best in the world at the time, and the British diplomatic corps was trained by the Venetians. So again, I think that's a really useful quote because it says that the Venetians could not be understood by looking at what position they took on an issue. They did not care what position they took. They always took all positions, and I think that's modern-day politics too, All positions are controlled by the same people, left versus right, it doesn't matter. The LGBTQI plus BLM and of course the big war machine, none of it makes sense, there's no coherent message there unless you look at the true underlying feature of all of this which is control and power. That is the only thing where there is consensus but everything else is about controlling all sides of the narrative and that's why there's so much contradiction. Now, of course, what was happening in Europe in the 1500s and all of this manipulation, it led to ever-increasing amounts of bloodshed. So this is what it was all about. It was about getting a nation so indebted that they could then install a central bank and get control of that nation's money supply. But of course, to get to that stage, you had to get that country heavily indebted. And that's where the epistemological war came from. Constant war meant the constant need for more debt, for more lending. And there is no better collateral on debt than the tax base of a nation. That is essentially the entire GDP of a nation. So that is another key reason why the central bank was desired because if you could get a central bank in a country, well, it was very unlikely that that country was going to default on your debt and the Venetians actually had experience with this. A number of merchant banking families in Italy almost were bankrupted when they had some of their debts defaulted on. So this is where the idea for a central bank came from. They realized that if they could get a central bank, they could force that country to tax the citizens to pay back the national debt. And then it would be extremely unlikely that that nation would ever default on their debt again. Of course, it would also give them power over the monarchs, over the political structures, and allow them to expand their influence across the world. And of course, they've been very successful with that. But this is still going forward a little bit too far in the story, because if we go back to where we was, the Venetians have just come out of the League of Cambry war on top, but only just. And now they're deciding to vacate their lagoon. They realize they have to move into Europe and they also have to consolidate power further. ...within some of these families, they need to take them over some of these monarchies. So they're marrying into them, they're sending their daughters and sons to marry into these families... ...and they realise they want a new location. And they have their sights set now on London, or more specifically the city of London... ...a tiny little enclave and a remnant of the old empire on the River Thames. And of course... They first go to Amsterdam, they're looking across the pond, they want to get into England, they want to get to the City of London, but to do that, lots and lots of pieces of the chessboard have to be moved around first. Whenever interest is tightly controlled, the continued compound leakage of money to banking centres does not occur. This financial hemorrhaging means that value remains where it belongs, with the small businessman and small landholder. Without a geometrically increasing mass of interest and debt, a fraction of today's total labour was sufficient to maintain monetary stability. Necessary supplies and a nobility forced to serve the state rather than rule within it was the case. Within the modern system of usury, centralization is unavoidable as compound interest continually increases the flow of real value out of the economy and into the coffers of the cabal. Okay, so I've got another quote here about Great Britain. The oligarchical system of Great Britain is not a native product of English or British history. It represents rather the tradition of the Babylonians, the Romans, the Byzantines and the Venetians, which had been transplanted to the British Isles through a series of upheavals. Prior to the Norman invasion, Anglo-Saxon England existed in a financial golden age. Again, smallholders was the norm, urban trade maintained low prices, and the lack of liquid capital forestalled any noble centralisation. Feudalism could not have existed under such a system. Usury was banned in Mercia under Offa the Great, and in Alfred's frantic attempt to centralise power in Wessex against the Danes, he too refused the services of the banking cabal. The Italian banks, however, were quite interested in William's planned assault on Anglo-Saxondom and to remove the Scandinavian influence from England. Usury was once again permitted, for a time, under the new Norman hegemony. The old Anglo-Aristocracy was slaughtered, and William imported a new nobility with close ties to Italy. Feudalism made its very first appearance on English soil. Ireland, seven centuries later, was also to see the benefits of Norman progress. So, English history really cannot be properly understood without the history of banking, usury, and today, I would add to that, the history of central banking, which we are now uncovering in this episode. So, this version of history that we're taught in school about kings and queens, it's really devoid of the truth or context. You know, for example, in 1572, we know that Henry VIII, when he was seeking divorce from Catherine of Aragon... It was Gaspara Contarini, a Venetian agent, who was sent to the English court alongside his uncle, another powerful Venetian, Francesco Zorzi, and Zorzi had been acting as Henry VIII's sex advisor. So, when I say that there was agents literally everywhere doing all manner of things, I truly mean it. Francesco Zorzi was the sex advisor to Henry VIII, and they convinced him to break with the Roman papacy. Again, this was another power play, so if you want to know where Protestantism comes from, now you know it came from the Venetians. This was, again, about weakening power structures in Europe so that they could then make greater inroads into these many different nations. And, you know, it took a long time, but it was going to come to a very bloody and brutal head a few Centuries later, and that was of course with the beheading of Charles I, who was executed, and that was done at the behest of Oliver Cromwell, who again, he was an agent of the bankers, as we are going to find out. From the reign of Edward I to the plague, England was prosperous. The working year amounted to 14 weeks, within which all essentials were obtained. The church calendar in both Eastern and Western Europe required between 100 and 140 days off a year, excluding Sunday, and a period after Easter. Edward I, 1307, imitated the Byzantines, where many Anglo-Saxons had been serving after 1066, by tightly limiting interest and its accumulation. During the Middle Ages, usury was again abolished, and tally sticks were used. These were kept in use for 700 years to some degree or other. Despite what we are told about the Middle Ages, the populaces lived well, something that has been detailed by William Cobbett in comparing the conditions of workers of medieval times to those of the Industrial Revolution. As in Rome, history repeated itself, with a series of ups and downs for the usurers over the centuries, and of course, as we now know, their eventual triumph. In this instance, ushered in by the victory of Cromwell and the Puritan Revolution, shortly followed by the creation of the Bank of England, a privately owned consortium based on the Dutch model, Once Charles I was defeated in 1645 and Cromwell instituted, a military dictatorship over Britain and Ireland fell in 1653. The banking regime now had its enemies destroyed and its place was assured. So the reason this whole backstory is important and why I'm telling you it is because if we don't know this epoch of history and all of the stages that led to the formation of the Bank of England, we cannot understand its significance and what the Federal Reserve truly is either I would add because it is all part of one continuum one legacy going all the way back to Babylon but for the sake of today's episode we're beginning in Venice because it's just too much history to cram in and I've tried to give you this whistle-stop tour of how we wound up where we are today but it's important to understand that England changed fast and by the time of the regicide of Charles I its fate, our fate, was all but sealed Cromwell's first move was to repeal the Edict of Expulsion, which was instituted in 1290 by King Edward I. Now, this expelled the Jewish bankers from the country. That's why the Jews were thrown out of the country. It was because of the banking and the usury. So that's where the Edict of Expulsion came from. And then once Cromwell had got back in, of course, he was an agent of the bankers. The first thing he did was repeal the Edict of Expulsion and allowed the bankers to set up shop back in in britain now the fact that they're jews the fact that they're jewish bankers that's just historic fact and i know that there's been so much weight attached to saying that these days but listen what we're talking about here is history and if you go to england's own constitution and we do have a constitution it's made up of a number of documents and just before the edict of expulsion of course we had the magna carta and it had this to say number 10 If one who has borrowed from the Jews any sum of money, great or small, die before that loan be repaid, the debt shall not bear interest while the heir is under age, of whomsoever he may hold. And if the debt fall into our hands, we will not take anything except the principal sum contained in the bond. And if anyone die indebted to the Jews, his wife shall have her dower and pay nothing of that debt. And if any children of the deceased are left under age, necessaries shall be provided for them in keeping with the holding of the deceased. And out of that residue, the debt shall be paid, reserving, however, service due to feudal lords. In like manner, let it be done touching debts due to others than Jews. So that was in the Magna Carta in 1220. And of course, in 1290, there was the Edict of Expulsion, which drove the bankers out of the country. Now, the bankers just so happened to be Jewish, which is why they're called Jews in the Constitution. It's just the word that's used. It's not my term, it's their term. And you have to understand why that is also. Again, the reason why the Jews were lending money is because they were allowed to practice usury. We got to remember, usury is a grave sin across the world and always has been for the very reason that we are in the situation where we are today, where we are beholden to a tiny cabal of people because usury creates debt and debt creates bondage and that creates slavery. So the reason why Britain had Jewish bankers to expel in the first place is because Jews were allowed to lend at interest to non-Jews. So to one another they couldn't, but to non-Jews they could. And, of course, the consequences of having these bankers lending at interest led to all kinds of problems in Britain. It led to a lot of the land being stolen. It led to poverty and impoverishment of the masses. And that's why the Edict of Expulsion was enacted in 1290. So let's get that one out of the way and let's move on a little bit. Now, it's important to understand, like I said, that Cromwell was an agent. He was an agent of the Venetian bankers and he'd made a secret agreement to allow the Jewish banking houses who were funding him back into the country. So they beheaded Charles I, then Cromwell came in, and then Charles II was put in power. So they reinstated the monarchy under Charles II. He was the son of Charles I. The Jewish bankers were back in, but his reign was severely undermined and sabotaged. And what was happening here is the Venetian bankers were going in for the kill. They thought if they could really disparage Charles II then they could ultimately create the circumstances where they could get their own monarch on the throne, a puppet monarch. So his reign was undermined, there was various incidents, there was the Great Plague in London, the year after that there was the Great Fire of London, which both just coincidentally happened in the city of London, where there was these new people setting up shop the Banksters were back in, and then there was also a mass propaganda campaign against him. Now, I'm going to do some special episodes on the great fight of London. We're going to go into that. But if you go back to my episode on the city of London, if you go to part two, I do talk about it. And it was extremely suspicious. That's all I'm going to say. And so the stage was set for the final coup in which the Dutch puppet William of Orange would come across in the so-called Glorious Revolution, which turned out to be the mother of all colour revolutions. And it resulted in the transfer of the oligarchy's base of operations from Amsterdam finally to the City of London. And then within six years of that Glorious Revolution there would be the first central bank, the one to rule them all, the Bank of England. Now, Amsterdam did have its own central bank, but it was nothing like what would happen in Great Britain with the Bank of England. This was really the installation of a global financial oligarchy. And with this, the final piece of the puzzle would be in place and so would begin the era of central banking from which the world is still reeling to this very day. Noble Venetian, Pray tell us what other prerogatives the king of England enjoys in the government, for otherwise I who am a Venetian may be apt to think that our doge, who is also called our prince, may have as much power as yours. Henry Neville, Plato, Redivivus. 1681. The need for a privately owned central bank was fronted by a retired pirate, William Patterson, when he wrote a pamphlet in 1692 entitled A Brief Account of the Intended Bank of England. He would later boast that this bank "...hath the benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing." On Thursday the 21st of June 1694, subscription lists for the bank, which had a capital of £1,200,000, were opened. By the following Monday, this amount had been fully subscribed. The ostensible purpose of the bank was to lend King William unlimited sums at 8% per annum to enable the prosecution of war, and in particular, the conflict against Louis XV of France, whose country was not on the usury system. So I just wanted to pause that quote there, there is a little bit more, but just make note of that, that the war between Britain and France, well Louis XV of France, they were not on the usury system like in Great Britain, and remember the goal here was to install central banks in every country, so if you look at some of the terrible history France had with its revolution and the beheading of lots of the oligarchy there. Well, that makes sense now, doesn't it? Remember Napoleon too. Napoleon tried to get the country in order. He went to a gold-backed system. So you have to understand this history to understand France also. The bank would thus receive the crown interest of £100,000 per annum, the additional £4,000 being an administrative fee. The bank also acquired the right to issue £1,200,000 in banknotes without any gold cover. So again, the fiat system was already being devised. It was meant to cover these notes by gold, but that wasn't happening. They were making the money out of nothing, ex Nihilo. The name, the Bank of England, was a carefully constructed lie designed to make the bank appear to be a government entity, but it was not. It was a private bank owned by private shareholders for their private profit with a charter from the king that allows them to print the public's money out of thin air and lend it to the crown. What happens here at the birth of the Bank of England in 1694 is the creation of a template that would be repeated in country after country after country around the world. A privately controlled central bank lending money to the government at interest, money that it prints out of nothing, and the jewel in the crown for the international bankers that creates the system is the future economic powerhouse of the world, the United states which we are going to get to in part two when the bill that included the enacting of the bank was passed there were only 42 members of the house present the opening sentence of the bill reads as follows william and mary by grace of god king and queen of england scotland france and ireland defenders of the faith etc to all for whom these presents shall come greeting the third sentence which contains 242 words starts Whereas in and by a certain act lately made in Parliament entitled an act for granting to their majesties several rates and duties upon tonnage of ships and vessels and upon beer, ale and other liqueurs for securing certain recompenses and advantages in the said act mentioned to such a person shall voluntarily to advance the sum of fifteen hundred thousand pounds carrying on the war with France is amongst other things enacted." So just to decode this, the bill was basically putting forward a lot of verbiage about things like taxation on different items and it had very little to do with discussing the bank itself. In fact, it was buried deep into the document and like I said, there was only 42 members of parliament present, so a lot of them had been scared away, told you do not go there and if you do, well, you're going to be voting this way or in the very best you will abstain, you do not vote against us. And it was orchestrated, of course, to get the bank into power. The gist of the first two-thirds of the bill details the necessity to levy a complicated array of new rates duties and taxes on ships beer ale and other liqueurs the true purpose of these taxes was that they were needed in order to fund the interest on all future government loans so there you have it everyone that's where the taxation came from shortly after therefore further taxes were introduced including a land tax a paper tax a poll tax a salt tax a stamp tax and a window tax which replaced the hearth or chimney tax So, this is where people were actually being taxed on how many windows they had on their house. So, the history of taxation is the history of theft. Other taxes initiated were a tax on peddlers, a tax on hackney coaches, a tax on births, marriages and deaths, and lastly, a tax on bachelors. So, you couldn't escape that one, listener. You could be born, you'd get taxed, you could get married, you'd be taxed, you could die, you'd be taxed. If you was a bachelor and you decided not to get married, you'd be taxed too. However, the most punitive tax introduced was an income tax levied at a rate of 20%. It was applied not only to companies, but to laborers too. And of course, the income tax is the key one. And most of us today, I don't know if you know this, but most of us today work four to five months out of the year for free. Just to pay our tax burden. So we do not see a penny. We work four to five months of the year just to pay our individual tax burden. This is theft. This is robbery. And of course, this goes back to the banking takeover. That's how they manage to enslave a nation. They have their family fondos. They pass on 100% of their wealth. Stolen wealth. Stolen wealth through central banking. They don't pay any taxes on it. We pay taxes to them. To pay off the interest on the debt that they produce ex nihilo out of nothing and attach interest to to loan to our countries. Within two years of its establishment in 1696 the Bank of England had £1,750,000 worth of banknotes circulating with a gold reserve of only 2% or £36,000. So, £36,000 worth of gold covering £1,750,000 worth of banknotes. So, this is the real final insult, isn't it, when they take us to a fiat monetary system. There's not even any gold in the vault covering this money that they are lending at interest. On the 1st of May 1707, the union between Scotland and England was established, motivated in no small way by the necessity to seize control of the Royal Mint in Edinburgh, which took place in 1709. Okay, so from the moment the Venetian party pulled off their coup in England and they managed to install William of Orange on the throne, their puppet king. The national debt started to take off like a rocket and we also now had a series of financial booms and busts that were built on walls and walls of speculation. And of course the constant usury became the driving force of British society. Now, in moves that would be recycled later on in the formation of the Federal Reserve, the bill, like I said, it was snuck through Parliament with next to no scrutiny. Just think about that for a second. The entire nation was about to be sold to an international banking cartel and only 42 members of Parliament showed up. And the bill itself made barely any mention of the bank's creation. Sound familiar? You know, it sounds like some of those bills we've seen in the past few years to do with COVID, doesn't it? Where Parliament just simply didn't even turn up to bother. These emergency powers that were supposed to be temporary, nobody even voted on them. They were just ushered through with not a degree of scrutiny. So that is why I say it's all political theatre. There is no left and right. There is nobody there with any power at all. Those people are puppets and they have been for hundreds and hundreds of years and we'll find out in part two it's just the same in the U.S. Now unsurprisingly after the creation of the central bank in England there was a new epoch of permanent forever wars tied to an unpayable debt that enabled this tiny cabal to issue money at eight percent interest. Of course the nation could be issuing its own money interest-free but then it wouldn't be able to go to war all the time, so wars would have to cease. And that is where epistemological warfare comes from. If you want to understand why we're always at war, that is why it's to indebt the nations, to force them to take more debt and pay more interest to the banking cabal. So the nation became enslaved by the banking elite and within just a few generations, England became the largest debt nation on planet Earth. With millions upon millions of citizens forced to endure lives of poverty or worse, be thrown into an eternally churning meat grinder as part of one of those forever wars. And if you look at what happened during the industrial revolution, that was a country of slaves. These were not people who were living in the richest nation on planet Earth. No, it was not the richest nation on planet Earth. It was owned by the richest cabal on planet Earth. By 1720, after the conclusion of the war of the Spanish succession, the national debt had risen to 30 million pounds, with the war itself having cost 50 million pounds. After the American War of Independence 1775-83, which had been fought after the colonists had been forced to replace their debt and largely interest-free colonial scrip with English money and had resulted in 50% unemployment, the national debt soared to $176 In 1786, Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger tried to abolish the national debt with a sinking fund which generated interest of £1 million per annum to repay the debt. This scheme was soon abandoned because of the enormous increase in loans in care to finance the war against Napoleon. In 1797, in order to pay for the burgeoning interest burden, a system of graduated income tax had to be introduced, which by 1815 was yielding £70 million per annum. The war against the French lasted from 1792 until 1815. Among the principal objectives of this pointless bloodletting was to destroy Napoleon's debt and interest-free based system of finance. During this period, England also waged war against the United States from 1812 until 1814. This war, as was the case with the war against France, was instigated by England at the behest of a banker, a man named Mr. Mayor Amschel Rothschild. After US Congress voted against the renewal of the charter of the Rothschild controlled Bank of the United States, which had been a central bank in America from 1791 until 1811. And we're going to go through that story in part two because the road to the Federal Reserve is perhaps even more astounding than the road to to the central bank in England, the Bank of England, because in the US there was a whole series of assassinations, there was attempts to get central banks up and running once, twice, three times, long before we got to the creature from Jekyll Island, the Federal Reserve. Now, after the defeat of Napoleon, Nathan Mayer Rothschild was active in pushing for a banking system that would secure the control not just of Europe, but also Russia too. Tsar Alexander I rejected any such plan and instead created a new holy alliance between Russia, Prussia and Austria, who were to be pushed into cataclysmic conflict just a few generations later. So this is why the establishment of the Bank of England was so important because it really sets the stage for this narrative about how a complete takeover in Europe was enacted. And remember, there was also World War I and World War II still yet to come. There was the Russian Revolution. All of this is a part of the same narrative. It was about the subjugation of the nations of Europe to get central banks established. And having discussed the Rothschilds, it would be remiss of me not to say the famous quote from Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who once famously said the following, I care not what puppet is placed upon the throne of England to rule the empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. And that is because the Rothschilds became the essentially the leaders of the Bank of England cartel they were the number ones over there so they were running the show very very quickly so once you know this history that I've laid out you can understand that quote you can understand what he actually means but for the everyday man and woman on the street they simply have no idea most of them still believe the Bank of England is an arm of government and of course it was actually nationalized in the 1900s but that doesn't mean anything That is just all for show. Nationalising a private bank when the country itself is owned by the banksters doesn't mean anything and if you think our country is free from the central bankers well i've got a bridge to sell you so like i said this all set the stage for the horrors that would befall europe in the 20th century not to mention in russia during the revolution and of all these other countries as well as well in the global south who were enslaved or had their resources stolen again this was all enacted by the bankers the countries were just being used to enact the whims of the bankers. Now, as a case in point, to understand what the Bank of England was all about, if you don't believe me or if you think that I'm over-exaggerating, I'm going to give you a quote from Montague Norman, who helped fund the rise of Hitler and was in charge of the bank during the critical period going into World War II. Yes, you heard me right. The Bank of England sent money across to the German Reichstag during the rise of Hitler and they helped fund him. But here's a quote that Montague Norman, the governor of the Bank of England, said in 1924 when he was addressing the United States Bankers Association in New York. Capital must protect itself in every way possible, both by combination and legislation. Debts must be collected, mortgages foreclosed as rapidly as possible. When, through the process of law the common people lose their homes, they will become more docile and more easily governed through the strong arm of government applied by a central power of wealth under leading financiers. These truths are well known among our principal men who are now engaged in forming an imperialism to govern the world. By dividing the voter through the political party system, we can get them to expend their energies in fighting for questions of no importance. It is thus, by discreet action, we can secure for ourselves that which has been so well planned and so successfully accomplished. Well, I don't think it really gets any more obvious and any more damning than that. If anyone doubts the history I'm laying out here, there you have it in their own words. What this whole central bank project was about it was about creating a one-world totalitarian system in which the common people would be impoverished driven into the ground they would have their homes foreclosed on as rapidly as possible as he said and discreetly they would form an imperialism to govern the world they would divide us with political parties and a political system in which nothing got done and all of our energy would be spent fighting questions of now importers now if that doesn't more accurately describe where we are today i don't know what does now, as it stands right now, we have this debt-based Ponzi scheme that has gone global. We have quadrillions in derivative debts in the banking system. We've got global debt in the hundreds of trillions. And the banking system is rigged to implode. And I don't know if everyone knows that, but it's going to happen very shortly. There is too much debt in the system. There is zero growth. And all they can do now is debase the currencies to the final hyperinflationary endpoint. And we're getting there now. We've got inflation well above 20 percent in lots of nations and they cannot fix this one since 2008 we have been on life support they lowered interest rates to record lows that inflated something called the everything bubble where we had stock market bubbles housing market bubbles bubbles in fine wine bubbles in pretty much anything you could get your hands on and of course, the reason for this is because interest rates were at zero and they were printing the money. They were printing the money and that money was going into assets. Now they can do that no longer because the system is so indebted. And when they print that money, inflation comes back and inflation is going to come back with an vengeance. Now, the system ultimately will end in a debt collapse, which is highly deflationary. It's what happened in the 1930s. And we'll talk about this in part two. But one thing that you have to understand, listener, is that all of your assets that are on paper, everything that is paper that is in that system, so I'm talking your stock portfolio, your bonds, your pension, anything that has debt attached to it, that will collapse with the system. They have put into legislation bank bail-ins, so that means that your bank deposits will be given to the bank in the banking collapse. Also, over the past decade, they have quietly introduced legislation worldwide, and there's a book that's just been released detailing this called the great taking in which we find out that they have made it so that those stocks and shares that you think you own you don't own them you don't own them at all they are no longer classed as private property they have actually been turned into collateral so that when this system is reset when this whole Ponzi scheme collapses and like I said we're on the precipice of it now the system is about to go down, and I think they're going to bring it down via controlled demolition, but they've already put it into legislation that all of the stocks and shares can be used as collateral against all of that toxic debt in the system. So to put this into layman's terms, all of your pension... All of your stocks and shares, all of your government bonds, they're all going to get handed to the banking cartels in the collapse and it's being put into legislation already. Similarly, your bank deposits are going to get bailed in. That's in legislation already. So if you want to understand how they can make everybody own nothing, the own nothing and be happy, we've all heard it said. But how do you really get everyone to own nothing? Well, you ensure That all of their financial assets are tied up in the Ponzi scheme system. And then you pull the plug on it. You pull the plug on it having put in the legislation to ensure that nobody gets bailed out. They might say, but I've got deposit insurance on my bank account. I'm sorry to tell you that's a scam. It's a lie. It's all trickery by the banksters to keep you in the system. The deposit insurance scheme has enough funds in there to give every man, woman and child about £16 each. So it's not going to bail you out. And if they print the money for that, well, that money would be hyperinflating overnight because the money is not backed by anything. You cannot just print money without getting inflation. So ultimately, what I think is happening is they are preparing to take us to the central bank digital currency to get people to accept that and to turn us all back into serfs. They're going to have to impoverish us all. And I think that's what's going to happen with the big rug pull. That's what this legislation is about. So you really have to think this one through. And this is why it's so important to understand the history of banking, to understand that the goal all along, as put so eloquently by ex-Central Bank Governor Montague Norman in 1924, the goal all along has been to centralise power and wealth Under the world's leading financiers That's your cabal of bankers So if you want to understand what's happening in the world right now You need to understand everything that I've just told you And for those that are not prepared They are going to immediately go down with the ship And that is the point, that is the goal Because then you can have a QR code system forced upon you If you don't have a phone, you'll be given one Or you'll be given a chip under the skin On your hand, which is the next step But for now, let's just imagine it's a phone They will give you the phone And you'll have to use that phone and the central bank digital currency on that phone which again will be completely fiat backed by nothing and that will have restrictions applied to it. You'll have no wealth left to be autonomous anyways and if you refuse to take their magic injection, if you refuse to eat what they tell you to eat, to say what they tell you to say, to think what they want you to think well, then you will be kicked out of the system entirely. You'll have no access to resources, to food, to land. That is the goal, is complete and total serfdom. And like I said, the legislation is now in place to ensure that most people have everything confiscated in the coming financial crash. And that is ultimately why I am making this content to help alert people to what's coming so you can start getting prepared. Now, I think for those people that do take action right now, for people that do get themselves prepared, there is a brighter future because because I don't think their system survives very long. I don't think it survives long at all. That's if it does, in fact, get established because there are still opportunities and there are going to be some God-given opportunities, some divine intervention I'm sure is ahead of us where we will have the opportunity to change the course of history. And of course, that's why it's so important to share information like this. So we will have opportunities, but even if we do not succeed because not enough people are aware of what's going on and too many people bury their head in the sands as they have been doing, sadly, Then their system may get established but only for a very short time. It will be so chaotic. It will be so catastrophic. It will be similar to the Soviet experiment in communist Russia. There will be people without enough to eat. There will be starving people. There will be rioting on the streets. There will be fighting. It will be a collapse moment a true collapse moment, but for those of us that have exited the system and started to take back control of our food, of our water, of our energy, that have started to build the true parallel system, where we say no thank you to CBDCs, I'm never going to touch that thing, where we say no thank you to the digital IDs and QR codes, it's not going to happen for us, we're going to have our separate system, but we have to start building that now, that's, of course, why we are building our community over on my other channel, The Parallel Systems Broadcast, which you can join if you would like. You can go to patreon.com slash Parallel Systems. Now, this is not for the podcast part two. This is for all of my financial content, my financial newsletter. It's separate to The Parallel Mike podcast. But we do have a private telegram group over there and we are getting ourselves prepared and helping one another. We're talking about food. We're talking about energy, water, and, of course, our finances because that's absolutely critical as I hope I have pointed Out at the end of tonight's show. Now for part two of the podcast, you go to parallelmic.com and you can become a member there, and you can get part two to this and every other podcast episode out there. And we also have a forum over there now, so we're going to be talking in the forum as well. But like I said, both of them are separate. Some people get confused. The Parallel Systems broadcast existed before the Parallel Mic podcast. It's completely separate. It's all about finance and getting prepared, whereas the podcast is about deep dives into subjects. And not everyone who listens to the podcast listens to the parallel Parallel Systems Broadcast and vice versa the other way. Some people love both and I love them for it because you really support my content. And ultimately, this is the only way I can put 50 hours a week into making this content is to actually have some paid for services. But I try to give as much as I can away for free. And of course, if you go to my Rockfin channel, Parallel Systems, or you go onto YouTube, the Parallel Systems Broadcast, I give a lot of my financial content away for free as well. The Patreon is for people who want more specific support and want to be a part of a community. And of course, you've also got the Parallel Mike podcast too, where it has its own separate community forming over on the website. Now, I'm going to leave it there because part two awaits us. So members, please come across to parallelmike.com. If you are not a member yet and you would like to join, you can go check it out. Similarly, I also do do consultations. So this is for people who want specific advice about how to protect Their pensions, how to protect their bank deposits, how to protect their wealth before the coming collapse. So, if you'd like to talk with me one to one, you can do that. You can check out my website under Wealth Preservation Consultations. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. The true art of living is to live through times like this and still enjoy yourself and to still have meaningful, beautiful moments with your family. And I think we can all do that. We can build that community. Make an independent system that is based around principles of goodwill, of community, looking after one another, virtues that have been sadly lost in today's world. But I think we can do that on a small scale and ultimately we can create something that will survive what comes next. And when the next system collapses, which it inevitably will, and it will bring down those people atop of it, I'm sure of this, then our system will remain and that'll be the one that takes hold for the next phase of human history. And like I said, I do think we have some divine intervention along the way, but you have to be living in truth and enough of us have to be living in truth for that to occur. So wishing you all the best, hope you're all healthy and happy and I'll see you all in the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence is...